Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm joined as always by conservative commentator, analyst, consultant, all around woman about town, Alicia Preston and former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Folks, I'd like to start, not that Ukraine isn't, as always, the foremost issue in our mind, but I'd like to start with an issue that is sort of developing and breaking and is going to be unfolding throughout the week. Um, As we record this right now, we're recording this on a Monday. This will probably hit the radio airwaves and podcast on a Tuesday. But Ketanji Brown-Jackson is going in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee this week for her confirmation hearings. And there was just a ton of reporting emerging over the weekend about how Republicans are going to try to navigate this set of confirmation questions and how they're going to try to set a political tone around these confirmation hearings. Now, obviously, Supreme Court nominee confirmation hearings are very high profile. They're they're a big deal. There's a belief out there that they can reset the political tone. They clearly had a lot to do with everything that went down in 2018 uh, around Brett Kavanaugh. And there was a hope for a while among Democrats that the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett were going to reset the narrative in 2020. It does not appear that that actually happened. But the reporting that was coming out over the weekend was around the dilemma that Republicans are facing. On the one hand, they seem to want to set a respectful tone. They want to show that in their minds, they can be classier about this than they feel the Democrats were. This is their perception that they feel the Democrats were about Brett Kavanaugh. On the other hand, there are emerging lines of attacks that don't sound like they're hewing to that classy theme. So, Alicia, you probably bring the greatest insights here on the panel into the Republican mindset. How are Republicans going to try to go about this? And are they going to be able to kind of keep that take the high road approach, given the dynamics of what's going to happen in the next few days? Well, they should. And they certainly shouldn't treat um, Judge Brown Jackson as Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett were treated. I think both of those are disrespectful systems and actions. Uh, They should take a higher road. They should be more respectful. Look, you know, a couple of things. Number one, I miss the days of, you know, back to when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was approved and she got 90 something votes because the question wasn't, do I agree with you on various opinions, it, you know, political opinions? It is, are you qualified for this position? That should be the question. And the only question these senators take up. That being said, it doesn't mean they're not allowed to ask questions. You know, there's this fine line and it is a fine line. But, you know, I looked at, you know, th- there's questions out there Republicans are raising and I do not know the answer to any of this, but I think it's worthy to be asked. Um, did, did, you know, when as a defense attorney and a public defender, did she defend Guantanamo Bay um, prisoners? Were they terrorists? What were the lines of defense? I actually think those are legitimate questions, not necessarily legitimate questions that, you know, have the right to derail the nomination process. But I think as someone who will be on the justice you know, be a justice and she will get confirmed. Uh, I think these are, you know, important questions to ask and it's okay to ask questions. You know, my concern is there's a little too much fear of doing or saying anything and there shouldn't be. Sounds to me like she's qualified, but I don't get a vote. That should be the only question. But again, it doesn't mean they're not allowed to raise questions about her legal history. Paul, do you think that Republicans are going to be able to set the tone that at least from a strategic communications level, they seem to want to be setting this week? 
Well, remember, the, the loudest voices always get the most press. So I think that many of the Republicans will try to control themselves, um, which is smart. They should try to control themselves. This is a historic nomination. I think that, um, uh, you know, lawyers uh, defend criminal and criminal defense lawyers defend all kinds of awful people. And uh, or people who have done awful things. Um, in fact, they wouldn't be criminal defense lawyers if they didn't defend people who have done awful things. So the idea that there is any line of attack, uh, whether whether the person is in Guantanamo or Sing Sing or Alcatraz or wherever they are, that there's a line of attack against a criminal defense lawyer over what clients he or she represents is is anathema it's it's a it's really dumb it's a stupid line of attack and it simply is trying to libel or slander her by by saying guilt by association you defended terrorists therefore you're a terrorist oh by the way you're an african-american woman defending terrorists so the the subtle or not so subtle message that republicans will be trying to send with that line of attack should they follow it, um, is is pretty awful. Um, and the other line of attack that I think extreme Republicans will make that appears to be um, showing up in some of the press is the, uh, the, the planned Josh Hawley attack saying, um, you're soft on pedophiles, uh, therefore you're a pedophile. I mean, that's basically what he wants to say. Um, and that line of attack is is going to be really interesting because it's as it's as seamy as as they come. So what will get the press for Republicans is not any of the moderate marble mouth uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, well, I think she's qualified, but I have my doubts. But it's going to be um, Josh Hawley basically accusing her of being a pedophile. Yeah, you know it's interesting. This reminds me of a an episode of Great Ideas that I did recently with a researcher who was looking at committee hearings and how many fewer witnesses are showing up for committee hearings in Congress over the last 50 years. It's like about a fifth of what it used to be. Why? Because they've all become political grandstanding exercises. Now, look, political grandstanding at congressional hearings is not new. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a prominent yeah. feature of the movie The Godfather Part Two, right? <laughs> yeah, so, like, it's it, it's always been the way. I mean, that's it's always been, been the way. It's only it's the only purpose of the hearings is political grandstanding. Ah, that's the See, only that's purpose. The issue. That's the issue. Is that? But it's true. It's the it's only purpose. Not, but it's not what the only purpose used to be. Committees, as you well know, as you know better than anyone here, committees were for a long time the places in Congress where you actually asked substantive policy questions, where you investigated uh, the situation in the world, and you came up with policy. They were the policymaking parts well, of well, Congress. Okay, so let me hang on, hang on one second, because there are committee hearings which, in fact, are get to some real questions. That, uh, but that's that what the researcher is showing. Is it does happen. Not really so much anymore. It not does, so much it, anymore. It happens occasionally. I mean, it, well, rarely. Okay. Exactly. Oh, so, rarely. So, so when I was there, it happened occasionally. Most of the work that got done was done behind the scenes in the rooms out back uh, with staff members scurrying around and members 
doing the horse trading and, you know, questioning. And then you'd go out and you'd put on, it's, hey, kids, let's put on a show. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was bizarre theater. I used to call it Hollywood East um, because not very good performers would try to, you know, grandstand. But there were hearings and I I actually participated in hearings where some real work got done. Absolutely true. And here's what I'd like to suggest is that you could almost put this on a graph. Our, our podcast listeners aren't going to be able to see my hand gesture, so I'll try and describe this. You could almost put it on a graph. The amount of work that gets done is inversely proportional to the amount of intention that's on the hearing. If the cameras are on, the amount of actual substantive, what Alicia was referring to of like, hey, are you qualified? Oh, good, you're qualified. You get the job. The amount of that that goes on is in direct inverse proportion to how much attention there is. So my point is that I'm not surprised if this is what's going on with regular old congressional hearings, the most high profile of hearings, the, the, the ones that catch the attention of the public and the press are, of course, Supreme Court nomination hearings. And that's where I think you're going to see this most on display. You've got on the Senate Judiciary Committee people like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton you know, the best and brightest of America. They're all in contention in their minds for the Republican nomination in 2024. And they're all going to be jockeying with one another for a viral social media moment of them, you know, being tough and standing up for soft on crime liberals and whatever it is. And so I think despite Mitch McConnell's intentions, I'm not going to call them good or whatever, his strategic intentions, I don't think that Republicans are going to be able to help it because this is a classic case of their interests as a group are not aligned with the individual interests of the Hollies and the Cruises and the Cottons out there who are looking for their primetime moment. I would just like to interject that when you're putting together those Republican senators, I think Ted Cruz needs to be separated out on a little island all by himself. I, you know, kind of the extreme of the extreme of wackadoodleness. Just, just he, take him out of the other group. Listen, they're all wonderful. They're they're all great in their own way. Look, the nominees. No, no, for, even I'm not saying that. No, no, just take Ted Cruz, put him on. A, actually, can we legitimately take Ted Cruz and put him on a little island? For not just the nominees for Republican <laughs> senators who need to be banished to a small island. I, I Ted Cruz, outstanding nominee. Fine work this year. You know, and by the way, this island is off the coast of Cancun. Little little known fact. But but but. <laughs> Josh Hawley fist bumped the insurrectionists after January 6th. Like he, he French kissed them. I mean, practically like really, he doesn't deserve Island status. Maybe, no. but it would be a different Island. I'm just saying that Ted Cruz stands alone on his Island. Oh my there God. can be another Island for other potential outcasts, but, but I'm just saying, you know, he's in a class of his own. Paul, you have acting in Hollywood experience. If we created a reality show where we sent these deserving Republican senators to a lonely island to fend for themselves. What would you call this reality show? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, congressional survivor. Uh, let's think, mm. um, you know, I, I'd uh, like to, the, I'd like to use hill? a pejorative um, uh -huh. that I probably can't use on the radio. Like um, 
Dirtbag Island. Dirtbag Island. How about that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Let's come on. Let's that, move that, off. That's a little low. Let's have some respect for these elected officials. I mean, they've been elected by by real Americans from 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 real American places. And they're simply they are simply channeling the views of their constituents. And and for that, we should all be grateful for the undercurrents that make up this great country of ours, the dark, evil, nasty undercurrents that people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz so well represent. This is the problem with six-year terms, though. Like, and I'm not saying I'm opposed to them, I'm saying this is a problem with six-year terms. You get elected, you go crazy for four and a half, five years, then you're normal for like six months and that's all people remember and you can get reelected again. But you've got like a really long time to be a wackadoodle before you have to get to the point of potentially being held accountable for it. Well, here's a question then, because if part of the problem is, you know, we all have very, very short political memories. Like we know that, right? Human beings are like that. We have short memories about everything. And so it's very hard for voters to hold you accountable for anything that happened prior to last Tuesday. Isn't that ultimately the problem on the House side as well, where you can be Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? And you can believe that, you know, Jewish space lasers have, do do people remember that whole incident where she literally thought that Jewish space lasers were attacking us or whatever it was? And I mean, she's gotten crazier and crazier. I can't even get to the depths of her insanity anymore. And yet she is going to win. She is going to be reelected. Oh, I'm not sure. She's got a primary opponent that's moving up and up and up and giving her a run for her money. I think it's possible. Primary opponent. Yes, a primary opponent who is starting to give her a run for her money. And the question is going to be she's closing the gap, but their primary is actually pretty soon. Did she move quick enough to make that happen? So I've got a little bit of optimism. And that's the beauty of two years that when they're really kooky monkey, you can kick them out of office by electing someone new. Perfect response for for what I want to turn around and, and ask you guys, which is, you know, we just saw this week. And for our national listeners, you may have missed this news item, but Republican Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire actually rejected a redistricting map put forward by senators in his own party. He he doesn't think it's in the interests of voters. Now, maybe that, well, let me just ask you, because this is, this is the, the issue with congressional maps is that they are putting more and more members of Congress into totally safe seats. So if you have an insane person like Marjorie Taylor Greene, the only way to hold her accountable is within a primary. You're much more worried about your primary than you are about the general election. That's not great. But what's going on with this? Why is Governor Sununu, I mean, Paul, do you want to weigh in first? Why is Governor Sununu rejecting this Republican map? What does it say? He wants to run for the president of the United States. He's looking in the mirror and waking up and, and seeing a crown. Um, he's seeing a crown or, and a halo. Um, he wants to appeal to independence. Um, I mean, if I'm being really charitable, which on occasion I can be, he simply sees just how screwy the map that was drawn is, um, you know, trying to trying to simply make the first district completely impenetrable to Democrats because of the ire of Republicans who haven't been able to win the first district, um, uh, which has voted for uh, Carol Shea Porter and then Chris Pappas. 
um, which is must be just setting Republicans to tooth grinding at night that no amount of dental um, expertise can fix. I mean, it's they, 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 it must, it's making them insane. And so they, they drew this nutty congressional map, which, which tried to move everything around. And maybe Sununu said, well, why do we go, why should we go through all the inevitable lawsuits only to find that it's going to be ruled unconstitutional? Why don't I just nip this in the bud? bud? And oh, by the way, in terms of my future presidential plans, I can then say, look, this shows how independent I am. I do the right thing, uh, no matter that I'm a Republican. My Republican legislators were wacko and they drew this thing and, and I, I did the right thing. So I'm the kind of president you want to have. And that that's it. That's good politics. By the way, he did the right thing. Um, I, I was talking to somebody the other day who, and I, we were we were talking about this and I said, yeah, he did the right thing. And, and they said, look, as much as I won't, this, this was a Democratic strategist. And I said, as much as I don't want to admit it. Yeah, he did the right thing. Alicia, you are as plugged in as anyone in the state, in the state house. What are you hearing? What, what's your take on this? Well, in part, I I. First, I do think Chris Sununu is contemplating running for president, and I hope he does. I will be hashtag Team Sununu all the way. Uh, you know, I think that Chris Sununu is an incredibly politically savvy guy, but I'm not sure he's quite so calculated as to veto a bill because he may or may not in two plus years think of running for president as though this one bill would have any impact whatsoever. I just don't think it. I think he's a pretty genuine guy for whatever reason. He doesn't like uh, how this was done. Let's and I have no opinion on the matter one way or the other. But let's not forget, while it does solidify Republicans in the first district, it equally solidifies a Democrat in the second district. Um, is that the right thing to do? I have no idea. But it, it's not that one sided. It literally makes one blue district, one red district. So uh, maybe that's not a good thing. But like I said, I don't think Chris Sununu is so politically calculated to veto a bill just because he may or may not run for president of the United States in two and a half years. I, I, I would just contribute that I've stared over my years of working in New Hampshire political campaigns. I have stared at countless maps and countless vote totals in towns. And I can tell you there are obviously areas of this state that are Republican leaning, much more strongly Republican leaning or much more strongly Democratic leaning than the average of the state. You know, it's always a misnomer to kind of describe people as well. They've got their head in their ice box in the ice box and their feet in the oven. And on average, they feel fine. On average, New Hampshire is a purple state. <clears throat> There's a lot of variation. But what I can tell you is that it is awfully hard to draw a map that makes a Republican advantage that that really makes sense in a, a, a big portion of the state and a Democratic advantage. There's there's so much more distribution of Republicans and Democrats. To me, what would be a, a real reflection of the way people are sorted in New Hampshire would be to have two districts where people have to fight it out, where the parties have to fight it out, and it's on fairly even terms. By the way, in, in rejecting this map, Governor Sununu did say that he thinks a Republican can win in the second congressional district, Paul's old stamping grounds. And that may be true. But to me, the, the, what's interesting in all of this and in all the discussion about redistricting is I'm just less interested in 
the competition between the parties. I'm less interested in what it says for will Republicans or Democrats get more seats. What I'm worried about is where I started with this, which is when you have seats that are safe for one party and the only way to hold them accountable is through primaries. That, I think, is extremely unhealthy. We have to turn now to the subject of Ukraine, which is where we've led the shows for uh, our recent <laughs> our recent shows in recent weeks. Um, and we, we do have to talk about everything that's been going on. You know, it's been... It's been kind of a, every week has been chock full of um, really disturbing news um, out of Ukraine and uh, really difficult considerations. Obviously, last week, President Zelensky of Ukraine addressed Congress. Um, and, you know, obviously, we've seen, I think, a growing fracture between Republicans and Democrats on the way forward. The unity that we were seeing in recent weeks is beginning to, at least at the political level, beginning to come apart just a little bit as the parties try to sort out some of the domestic politics of the war in Ukraine. One dynamic that's emerged that we touched on a few weeks ago, we were kind of previewing, would this come to pass, has definitely been rearing its head in recent days, which is this idea that, have you noticed that Donald Trump was impeached for withholding military aid from Ukraine. He put a pause on the shipment of weapons. He refused to have President Zelensky come to the White House. He sent his thug on a tour to, to try and strong arm the Ukrainians into initiating baseless investigations into the Biden family. He did all of this stuff. And now we're seeing this in the wake of President Zelensky's speech, we're seeing this very weird hypocrisy emerge from Republicans like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who two years ago was on camera saying, oh, withholding military aid from Ukraine, that was the right thing to do. President Trump was, was great for doing that. And now is saying, hey, despite President Biden sending a billion dollars in new military aid to Ukraine right now, that's not enough. He's not being aggressive enough. And the split screen on it is just sort of mind bending. So this is what we talked about on the panel a few weeks ago. It's beginning to emerge. Alicia, what are you seeing here? Is there kind of an emerging Republican hypocrisy on this? Are they beginning to play politics in a, in a way with this that that doesn't really make sense with where the party was even a few months ago? Or is this just kind of a natural outgrowth of, of the way things go in our current political environment? I don't think it, it's becoming partisan negative division. I think people genuinely, uh, and look, everyone's desperate right now to help a country that we are having real difficulty helping. Even this 400 billion in aid and weaponry, the problem is we can't get it inside Ukraine. We've got a serious problem we probably can't solve. And that makes people frustrated and angry and searching for answers. I don't think it's political division. I think people are frustrated that their hands are tied. Anything we do could lead to World War III. No one knows what the right answer is. And I think everyone's trying in their own right. I think we are united in helping these people. I think also, if you haven't seen President Zelensky's speech to Congress, I urge you to watch it. It was powerful. 
It was beautiful. I watched it live. Um, he plays in there a terrible video of the real horrors of war and what's going on in his homeland right now. And he calls on President Biden, um, you know, that he is not just the leader of our great nation. He wants him to be the leader of the world. And he says, to be the leader of the world, you must be the leader of peace. And it is just such a powerful thing to watch to try to understand what is happening to this country and these people. And I think what's happening with our politicians right now is they're responding to that. Those people are desperate. We're desperate to help them. We don't have answers. And it's frustrating. Well, I think Alicia makes a very fair point that there is probably in all of this just a genuine impulse. I mean, look, you've been in Congress to receive addresses from world leaders begging the U.S. for help. And so you know better than anyone how powerful an appeal like that can be, especially when it comes with the kinds of images that Alicia was referring to. And at the same time, do you think that we're beginning to see the emergence of domestic partisan politics on this issue in a way that we weren't two weeks ago? Oh, you know, look, um, members of Congress are people and people have emotions. And um, it, it's not all calculation. It's also emotions that affect how members of Congress vote and what positions they take. So clearly Zelensky's address was powerful and clearly the horrors of the war in Ukraine are affecting everybody's emotions um, around the world. I mean, we all talk, you know, I, I don't know about you, but every conversation I have with people these days is, has come back to Ukraine. Um, you know, it's either, thank goodness we're not being bombed out of our homes and we've got, you know, what can we do about Ukraine? Or, I mean, it, it's, it's just on everybody's mind one way or another. And it is certainly um, dominating the political landscape here in this country uh, as both a subject and policy and questions and a real sense um, that you know, I mean, you have to notice and, and favorably that the craziness around the impeachment and Ukraine um, and what uh, most Republicans adopted uh, as a as a pro-Putin, pro-Russia uh, approach to life has mod has 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 sort of. Um, it's been modified um, a bit. And now you're probably seeing sort of uh, things going the other way, where most Republicans, it seems, have woken up and said, uh, well, Putin is, is not the kind, kind of guy we thought he was. And uh, look at this, he's doing bad things, and we ought to call him out on it and stand firm with, with people who care about freedom, democracy, and uh, the integrity of a sovereign state. So um, with that said, um, I think that uh, it's going to be interesting in terms of the conventional thought that Republicans are more hawkish than Democrats to see as time goes by, because the war does not show any signs of abating at this point, whether or not um, sort of the Republican hawks emerge and try to use that against Biden by saying we're hawkish enough to take the risks and we think you Democrats are being weak on this 
And uh, we think you ought to do more, just as Zelensky asked, um, more airplanes and, 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 and don't take any options off the table. And who are the Russians to scare us with their nukes? We've got more nukes. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that strain in the Republican Party emerging even more forcefully. I have an article out this morning. It, it, by the time this airs, it should be available on Alternet and Raw Story and the editorial board, outlining what to me seems to be the dividend that we've all gotten from getting rid of Donald Trump and his administration and electing Joe Biden. And I'm not trying to just praise Joe Biden here. I'm trying to draw a contrast between a well-run government, a, 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 an open an open American democratic exchange of ideas based government and the kind of Russified approach that Donald Trump brought to American office. And the dividend, it seems to me, is using our collective intelligence much better. And we talked about this on the show last week, the contrast between Joe Biden receiving these very detailed options analyses from across all of the different agencies, from experts, from from people wielding the, the rich sources of information that we have from around the world and Vladimir Putin sitting on the far end of a table berating his the, the head of his spy service for not sticking to the prearranged political script. That is a strength that we wield in America. And I think the, the worry that the last week has created for me is up till now, in my view, the Biden administration has charted a very prudent course. They have done a lot of things really well. They've wielded information warfare in a way that we've never seen before by getting out ahead of Russian actions and basically putting them out publicly to, uh, to undermine their ability to do things like false flag attacks and, and these constructed narratives that, that they were coming in as peacekeepers, they've basically wiped out Russia's ability to make these kinds of maneuvers that they've done in the past. They've rallied our European allies. They've gotten a ton of material and aid into Ukraine. They have, they have walked a pretty fine line and done it fairly successfully up till now. The thing is, this stuff is hard. And we just criticized the Biden administration with great justification for the withdrawal from Afghanistan and for not sufficiently wading into the messy details and playing the movie of how this would go and thinking through the options and the scenarios, what could unfold. They didn't do enough of that level of planning and there were some bad outcomes in Afghanistan. And now they're doing that, I think very successfully in Ukraine. And what worries me is that the mounting political pressure where it's so much easier to just say something like, well, we've got to be much stronger. Like Kevin McCarthy was saying, we've got to send more weapons. Wait, five minutes ago, you were saying that Donald Trump was right, right to withhold weapons from Ukraine. And now you've completely reversed because it's so easy and so costless to say. The reality is these things are really, really hard. There's a ton of work at the detailed level to figure out how to do these things. And the Biden administration is trying to do the work. So when it comes to a question like transferring Polish MiG, MiG fighters to Ukraine, it turns out it's not that easy. If you launch them from NATO airspace and they're flying into Ukraine, Russia could shoot them down. They would monitor that on radar. They would shoot them down or they would attack them. And if they were uh, piloted by NATO pilots, 
That would be an air engagement between NATO and Russia. We want to avoid that because that equals World War III. Okay, well, we could send them in by train like we've been doing with other military ordnance. Well, turns out that's not easy to do either. You have to disassemble those things. You have to put them back together. You have to have the personnel who know how to put them back together so they can fly as effective warplanes. My point is, my worry, and, and the reason I brought up this whole question is that I don't think it's costless for domestic partisan politics to begin to encroach on this fear. Up till now, I want to salute Republicans for not playing politics with Ukraine that much and for giving the Biden administration a fairly wide berth and a pretty good level of support to allow them to maneuver and do the detailed work that is required in a really complicated, messy situation like we have in Ukraine. What I'm worried about is that as the political temperature rises and as more kind of easy glib things to say, like we've got to be tougher, start to emerge, it's going to be harder and harder for the Biden administration to keep walking that fine line that helps our friends in Ukraine and avoids World War III. That is my concern. I just went on an extended rant. If anyone has any reaction to it, by all means, weigh in. You know, the only the only thing I'll, I'll say is I think that that the 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 American electorate uh, will be somewhat sympathetic to calls for more uh, more action uh, because you know we all feel like man we we'd sure like to do more so hawkish views may find fertile ground um, in in this instance because we all feel so completely helpless. I agree with Paul on that. And, you know, I'm probably one of those people with hawkish views, uh, certainly more so than President Joe Biden, but I have absolutely withheld, you know, saying we should be doing X, Y, or Z because I know I don't know. I don't know what they know. I, I don't know all these complexities and all this data and information that our government has. You know, I, I think the reality is I think we're facing World War III. I really do. I don't think Putin's going to stop. Um, I, I just don't see where or why he would. I think he is a raging lunatic at this point with a thirst for power that cannot be quenched. Uh, and I think we have to start looking and maybe they are. I'm not sitting there in the you know important people's offices. Maybe they are. We have to start seriously looking at the reality that we may be going to war via NATO or whomever with Russia because he's going to go further than Ukraine. And so do we stop him now or do we wait till then? I don't know the answer, but I think I bet some people are talking about it. Very scary prospect. And I'm afraid that you could well be right. Uh, well, I commend that article to folks. Uh, it's it's going to be up uh, from me. Uh, check out Raw Story, Alternate, or the editorial board and see what you think. I do want to cover at least one more topic uh, on our show this week, which is sort of the, the op-ed, the, the piece of writing that was driving a lot of the political conversation over the weekend. The New York Times released a, a big, apparently months in the planning and requested by the executive editor, a big uh, opinion piece entitled America has a free speech problem in which they call out cancel culture and the stymieing of free speech through kind of social media mobs that intimidate people into not giving opinions and that fail to give people sort of the grace and space to express views, ideas, thoughts, and opinions that may not be popular, but that 
we are free in our country to express. It's kind of a complicated topic. And, you know, Paul, we had Newsweek uh, editor Bacha Ungar Sargon on our show uh, a few months ago with her book about woke journalism. She has sat inside some of the biggest newsrooms in America, and she finds that, yes, inside these big newsrooms, there is a, a, a growth of woke culture that is shutting down conversation and dissent. And it's extended most hope high profile uh, to the New York Times, where you know we were talking about Senator Tom Cotton um, a few minutes ago, and it was his op-ed that caused a, a rupture within the New York Times and the departure of the executive editor, Dean Paquette. So, Paul, what did you make of this op-ed? There were a lot of reactions that it was really hypocritical, given the Times' role in kind of driving this woke opinion and woke newsroom culture to release this giant editorial now. But there's also a lot of reaction that, well, they're right. They're on to something. What did you make of it? You know, the subject is very confusing for me. Um, I don't <clears throat> I don't pretend to be naive about it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm now um, at the August stage in life where I've been around a while and um, uh, cancel culture uh, is 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 sort of mixed up with political correctness and a lot of people feel that political correctness has gone too far. Um, and so there's a fine line between being sensitive and not offending people and being politically correct in the way you speak and the extreme. And, 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 and for me, this is not ideologic, whether it's left, right, center, wherever it is, and the kind of extreme reactions you get from not being politically correct because you're claimed to be uh, insensitive and and therefore uh, you can't you can't do what what you want to do or say what you want to say um, and it does have a tendency to to get mixed up with the fact that we're living in this uh, digital age we're analog beings trapped in a digital age of too much information and 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 crazy talk okay there's also just plain crazy talk and the crazy talk um has led to violence on january 6th it's led to extremism on all sides of the political spectrum so trying to navigate between political correctness crazy talk hate speech um and promoting a civic dialogue is re has become really challenging. I'll, I'll give you here's here's a small example in my own family, and and forgive me if in politic if I if if my impulse was politically incorrect for any of you who want to cancel my culture, uh, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, we went out to an Asian restaurant, and on the menu. Um, were various succulent dishes and their names were Asian names. And I, in speaking to the serving person, there's a, there's a politically correct way of not saying waiter or waitress serving person, because I don't want to be accused of some kind of gender bias by saying the word waitress 
because it's on my mind that gender political correctness is important. The serving person, I spoke to the serving person and in, in saying what I wanted for dinner, my son was very politically correct, felt that I was appropriating culture by attempting to say the name of the dish I wanted to order in something that sounded like an Asian accent, because I was, I'm, I, I do a lot of accents, and I was trying to give it an inflection that was consistent with the name of the dish. And he got so upset with me, he stormed out of the restaurant. Um, this was some time ago, and he's matured since then. And he's probably come to uh, um, accept that his father is a jerk um, and capable of embarrassing him no matter what his age and station. But I thought that was a little over the top. I was just trying to order dinner. I was just trying to be actually, I felt I was trying to be sensitive to not sounding like the typical ugly American, I'll have the bandman tree um, um, kind of the thing I, I hate to hear when I'm traveling in a foreign country and I hear Americans who, who mangle the, the foreign language. So was I, was I appropriating culture? Should I have been canceled out? Was I being politically incorrect? The fact that I have to tell that story and the fact that I had to comment on the gender appropriateness of saying serving person as opposed to waiter or waitress suggests to me that in fact, in our society, cancel culture may have gone too far uh, to the extent that it's affecting and impacting the kind, the way we speak on at all the time about all kinds of things. Now it's different with, it's not hate speech. It's different than hate speech. So the Times op-ed was, you know, is it hypocritical? Sure. Have they been in the forefront of political correctness? Sure. On the other hand, we have to figure out how in this country to get back to a civic dialogue. And that civic dialogue may include being able to say difficult things in a way that people can hear. Um, we've got to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Alicia? You know, I think we could do an entire program on the discussion of cancel culture and, and political correctness and whatnot. But as for the Times piece, look, it, it's kind of like they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle that they themselves uncorked, right? I mean, but the piece has a lot of good information and, and there's polling in there and data. Some of it is so, it just shows how we don't self-reflect on us. One of the one of the poll questions was the outcome was 77% of those polled say they didn't respond harshly to someone they disagreed with. I call BS on that. 77% probably have, not the other way around. Um, but it was an interesting piece. It's it, it's a problem. It's a problem that we can't talk about things. Um, there are a million examples. Uh, Paul gave some of them, and I agree with them. Um, you know, appropriating culture. There's appreciating culture. Appropriating is just a silly word for it. But, you know, Here's a discussion that we're not allowed to have and we really need to have for the sake of young women across the country and the world is transgender athletes. You try bring up this topic, which is a very serious topic about biological males who are 
now or transgender females competing against biological women in athletics that is a big discussion you can't have and it needs to be had it needs to be had because thousands and thousands and thousands of young biological females are affected by it they're affected by it on their local sports or affected by it on professional sports or affected by it in collegiate athleticism but you can't have that conversation I've been called anti-trans and there's a t- another term for it I can't remember and a homophobe, which has nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, and they just attack you, attack you, attack you. And you say, this discussion has to take place because a biological female, we've worked for 50 years and I'm huge on sports. We worked for 50 years through Title IX and through equity to be able to give young women chances. And now we're taking them away. And I can't have that conversation because now I'm a hateful, bigoted, horrible person. That's a ridiculous thing. And we need to come back to a place in society where we can talk, even if we disagree. We have to be able to talk without someone canceling us, trying to ruin our careers or our families or whatever. Well, it's interesting that you both brought up examples that happen IRL in real life, right? But we have to, of course, acknowledge the role here of so much communication being mediated digitally through social media, which robs it of its context. One of the biggest problems of the last two years during the pandemic is we don't see each other face to face. We lose body language and context cues. And I'm going to have to leave it there because we're out of time on this show. We're going to talk much more about this topic next time on Balance of Power.